Hi there. Thanks for joining me on Conversations for Yoga Teachers. I'm your host, Karen Fabian, the founder of Bare Bones Yoga and the creator of the Momentum Magic Method, the way to become a confident teacher who seamlessly shares cues and easily creates sequences, whose classes are transformational, not just transactions, who understands anatomy and who shares their passion in a unique and authentic way. On the podcast, you'll hear anatomy lessons, stories from teachers, interviews with others in the field, and a dose of personal growth because having a strong and healthy mindset is such an important piece of being a confident teacher. In addition to the podcast, follow me on Instagram and TikTok for daily videos on teaching topics. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen today. Hi there. Welcome to Conversations for Yoga Teachers. I'm your host, Karen Fabian, and this is episode 268. So we have passed over 100,000 downloads. We're well into the 100,000s. And I just want to thank you again. I mentioned this on last week's show because it was last week that I officially crossed over into that territory of podcast uh, downloads. And I want to thank you so much for listening. I have um, a handful of conversations every week with teachers who tell me that they listen to the show. And so if you're one of those people who have shared that with me, I want to thank you so much. If you're a yoga teacher that I work with inside my program, and you've mentioned that, I want to thank you so much for listening. I, I just am so grateful that I have this opportunity to connect with you and just share different thoughts about uh, teaching. And, you know, when I started this podcast, I remember my dad said to me, how are you going to do a podcast about teaching yoga when so much of that is visual? And while I agree with that, I think in practice, I found that it's more than possible to do it. And what I've also found is that I lean much more into the topics that aren't necessarily about the anatomy of yoga or the shapes of the poses. And I lean more into talking about different mindset related topics. And uh, so it actually works out kind of nicely that for me, I have this avenue to connect with you about things that don't necessarily require the visual, um, but they're so important. I mean, one of the common threads throughout all the um, all the support that, not all the support, but one of the common threads in, in all of the momentum calls I have with the teachers in my program is that mindset is such a big piece of being an, uh, being an authentic, confident teacher. And so a lot of the conversations we have are around different ways of looking at things, ways that uh, teachers can shift how they think about themselves, how they think about themselves in relationship to their students, um, how they can feel more empowered, how they can um, feel more authentic when they teach and use their own words. What are some of the barriers to showing up in a way that they want to? And so all of that lives in the mind and lives in just our way of being. And so we really don't need necessarily, you know, to have an image of that. For each person that listens to my show, the image that comes to them when I talk about these things will be different. Um, but of course, you know, if you've been listening for a while, some of the topics I cover do literally involve the anatomy and, and the shapes of the poses and teaching techniques. So, uh, so it's a nice blend. So today, what I wanted to talk about first is just a couple different topics here. The first thing I wanted to talk about was I had this this revelation today, and, and it's really kind of a crazy one when you think about it, 
And I have this perspective because I've been teaching since 2002. So it's a while and I've seen different trends come and go. And I've experienced, you know, just different, different, I guess, trends in the industry. And one of the things I was reflecting on today is that when I began teaching and when I was trained to be a teacher, the, the whole conversation around asking for permission when you assist someone was never part of the conversation. And I was thinking of that because I was on my TikTok this morning or this afternoon, and I did a TikTok story. You know, people like to do story time on TikTok about, um, and I don't know if I've ever shared with you this story, uh, a story about a student who who came to class one time and he asked me to assist him in wheel pose. And what made this somewhat odd is that he was asking me almost like I was his valet, like, hey, when this posture comes up in the sequence, can you assist me for that? And it really took me aback. And at that time, this was like the early 2000s, we were trained to assist a lot in class. Matter of fact, they used to call it work the room like a typewriter. And you and this would often be if you were just assisting a teacher who was teaching. But even if you were teaching and assisting together, we were trained to do this typewriter format where you literally just went through every person in the room. And no, you never asked for permission. And no, permission never even came up in discussion in our trainings. So... I'll just take a little sidebar and tell you, tell you this story. So this gentleman asks me to assist him before class and my radar immediately went up. And you need to have your radar for students when they ask you things or when they act towards you in a particular way that is just not really good from a, bound, a personal boundary perspective. You need to, um, you need to honor the red flag that goes up if you are feeling like there's definitely something off here. And so that came up for me. It was a student I saw in my classes regularly, but this was a new, a new thing. So I don't remember exactly what I said, probably something like, hey, we'll see what happens because I knew at that point there was no way I was gonna go near this person in wheel pose of all things. And interestingly, the additional thing that was kind of, unique about wheel pose and assisting students is the way we were trained to assist people in wheel. There were a couple different techniques and one of them involves standing behind the person, putting your feet alongside their ears. They would grab your ankles. And then as they lifted up, you would put your hands on underneath them on their scapula, kind of holding their scapula and they would start to lean towards you. So their face was moving towards your knees. So it's kind of an intimate way to be, or definitely you're in very close proximity. You're leaning over the person, they're leaning towards your, towards your legs. Their head is not in your crotch, but it's kind of in that zone. So it's definitely not the kind of assist you want to do if you have any sort of red flags around personal boundaries and the student. So I taught the class. I did not assist him in that posture intentionally. And after class, everybody was filing out and he approached me and he said, how come you didn't assist me in that pose? And I was like, what? And he said, how come you didn't assist me in that posture? And I immediately, every red flag in the world in my body was on alert. And I quickly assessed what was happening around us. And I realized we were the only two people in the studio and my 
position in the room was such that his back was to the door out into the lobby. So if he wanted, he could have just reached back, closed the door, and we would have been alone in that studio. And I am not being melodramatic. You need to think about these things because you don't know. So immediately in the back of my head, I thought I need to get out into the lobby with this person because the person who's doing check-in is the only one left in the building and that person's out in the lobby. So I continued to engage him in conversation just by asking him some more questions. And we got out into the lobby, which was about 10 feet away. And we were both now in the lobby. And so I just, I don't remember exactly what I said, but I de-escalated the situation and he left. So the point of that story, just in a nutshell, is number one, honor your personal boundaries. Number two, you're never, you never can know what's going to happen in your classes. And that is why, number three, the most help, the best thing you can do is be in control of what you can control, how you show up, what your sequences you're going to teach. You have your queuing strategy down. You um you understand how to share anatomy or you're not going to touch on the anatomical theme and you're going to stick with action cues because having all that, which is within your control completely in a good place will allow you to have the energy you're going to need for the stuff that comes up that you never expected. This is a very much a one-off situation. This is like when I look back over the 20 some odd years of teaching I've been doing, I mean, I've had people pass out in my classes. I've had people um, in various stages of undress in my classes. I've had people act out in my classes in the center of the room. I've had people blurt things out in the middle of my classes. I mean, over the years, I've got a lot of stories. And if I didn't have the stuff under control that I could control, it would have sent me over the edge, but it didn't because I knew what I could control and that's what I did. So, so back to the original topic, which is, you know, at that time and for many years after assisting was just part of what we did. And we never asked anybody for permission. And it never even occurred to me that that was clearly inappropriate. And in today's world, of course, we ask people for permission. And thank goodness, we want to ask for permission. We want to give people agency over their own bodies and their own experience to the extent that um, when they come to class, they don't have to abdicate to the teacher control of their own personal boundaries to the point where this other person is just assuming they can touch them. And it just boggles my mind. And again, my original training was as a physical therapist. And even though I did not finish the program because I decided I wanted to be a rehab counselor, I went through two and a half years of, of the physical therapy program at Boston University. So I went all the way through clinicals. And even in that context, as a physical therapist, you're asking student, you're asking patients for permission to manipulate their body in certain ways. So it's just that vernacular, that framework was never part of how I was trained. And so having said that, and there's a separate conversation here about assisting, which I'm not going to have now, but we're, we're going to have that because I think that's an actually, actually an interesting topic. What I want to highlight here is, and what was really revelatory to me is that when I was being trained by uh, Baron you know, we all were being trained by Baron that assisting was part and parcel of what we were expected to do. Nobody ever questioned it. 
we just followed what he said. And there were actually a lot of things, not a lot of things, but there were a handful of things that we did that were a little bit unique that, you know, people just did. One of them was if you were teaching a class and someone left the room, the assistant, if you had one, was instructed to go out and get the person and try to encourage them to come back into the studio, which I, I mean, now I, I would never do that. I mean, the theory behind it was the person had hit the wall and you were supposed to encourage them to come back into the room, even if it just involved, they were going to be in child's pose as some sort of personal conquering over their hitting the wall. And I would never do that now. And, you know, there were a handful of things like this that came up. And the reason that this really strikes me today is because I think, you know, at the time, I so wanted to work in that studio, I would have done anything at at one point in early days to continue to work there. But at some point, and there was actually a pivotal moment when I was in a meeting and we were being asked to do something that I just, it just was such a red flag to me that I turned to my colleague teacher that was sitting next to me. And I said to him, uh, oh my God, it's like, he's asking us for our soul. And that's when I realized this is not a good fit for me. This studio system is not a good fit for me. And I remember I went out uh, out of the studio. And I called my mom and I said, mom, I, I can't teach here anymore. And she said, Hey, listen, you quit your corporate job to teach at this studio. You're, you can't quit. You need the money to, to pay your bills. And she kind of had a little bit of a, I don't know, come to Jesus conversation with me. I eventually did leave the studio, but my eyes had been opened. And the reason I bring this up is Number one, if you're teaching in a studio where you feel like you're being asked to teach in a particular way that doesn't, that runs counter to how you want to show up for your students, you need to honor that. It doesn't mean you quit tomorrow, but over time that will chip away at your confidence and authenticity as a teacher. Number two, you always should have agency over how you show up and the kinds of thoughts you have. It should never be that you're abdicating to someone else, especially when you feel like something is not right here. And we did a lot of that. And I think on some level, that sort of baked into yoga training. I mean, remember you know, many, many years ago, people used to throw around the term guru pretty regularly. Matter of fact, people would call Baron their guru and he sort of poo-pooed it. And, and I kind of liked that he did because he really, at least my impression was that he really didn't want to be seen in that way. But, you know, he was a really impactful teacher and people really did defer to him quite a bit. And I think this is one of the challenges when you become a really well-known teacher, people will defer to you. Now, that might be fine for people taking your classes, but when people are training with you, you know, it's really important. And I'm, and I'm saying this to you from the point of view of whoever initially trained you and how they shaped who you are as a yoga teacher. At the end of the day, you need to step out on your own. And if that isn't happening for you, and it's like six months to a year since your 200 hour teacher training, Time's a wasting. Like now is the time for you to begin to step out on your own and develop your own voice and develop your own 
way, your own methodology of teaching. So I just wanted to share that quick story. You know, the other thing that I wanted to bring up was a concept that came up in one of the calls that I had uh, with one of the teachers in my program. And I'm actually going to going to work to have my friend Kat on the podcast again. She was on a couple of years ago and she's an energy healer and a yoga teacher. And she talks about this concept that I brought up in one of the momentum calls I had with one of the teachers in my program this week. And it's this idea of energetic cords. And if you're listening and you're um, a specialist in the area of energy management, or uh, I'm not sure energy healing, this might be something you're familiar with. The way I understand it in talking to Kat and learning a little bit about it, uh, and, and shout out to Kat, she has a really excellent podcast called The Soul Awakening Podcast, so give that a listen. Um, the idea is an energetic cord, is an, it's an imaginary linkage between you and someone else or you and a group of other people that's detrimental to both of your growth. You know, there's also, there's a song by Taylor Swift called Invisible String. And she talks about invisible string in this song as a construct for, you know, connections between people, especially romantic relationships. And this idea that, you know, we're, we're kind of living our lives and we don't realize we have these invisible strings that connect us to other people. In this context of energetic chords, I bring it up with you because it's really important that we as yoga teachers uh, recognize when we have an unhealthy energetic cord between us and a student or us and our students. And the way that I often see this is when teachers are worried their students are going to get hurt or when teachers are worried about a particular student in their class who looks like they're new or having a hard time, whatever it is, that's an energetic cord. And overall, when you go in to teach your class, it's really important that you go in there clean, meaning you have little to no energetic cord that is between you and your students in a way that connects you to them as if you're trying to protect them or as if you're trying to save them. None of that is helpful to their growth. And in fact, a lot of the saving and worrying and all of that is misplaced because we can't know what that student's perception of their experience is unless we talk to them. And guess what? We're not talking to them in a yoga class. They're, we're cueing and they're doing, right? <laughs> that rhymes that we're cueing and they're doing. And all we're doing in observing them is making a whole bunch of assumptions. Oh, that person's having a hard time. Oh, that person's not liking this. Or, oh, that person is not enjoying my class. Or, oh, that person wishes it was harder. All of those things are assumptions. And this is what strengthens this energetic cord between us and a person or us and the group. What is so much more helpful for us to do, it's kind of like that concept of helicopter parenting. I mean, I don't have children, but you know, I know the paradigm and I'm sure you do too. You know, when we go in to teach a class, one of the things I really want you to appreciate is that everybody is there of their own free will. No one is forcing them to be there. Now, of course, I know you know that logically. 
It's just that when you worry, when you try to save them, when you go way out of your way to quote unquote, help the person, that's an energetic cord that's just standing in the way of their growth. Like I'll give you a perfect example. I had a conversation with a yoga teacher the other day and she said, she, and she has a medical background. And she said, she went into a class found out before class that one of the students in her class had a recent hip replacement. And so she immediately decided to wipe one of the poses she was going to do off her list. And to me, I was like, why would you do that? Why are you going to deny all the other people in the class the opportunity to do that pose? And number two, that person's there of her own free will. If she has a recent hip replacement, let's hope her doctor cleared her. And if she didn't have the wherewithal to ask her doctor, that's not on you, that's on her. Like we have to stop thinking that part of our role as a yoga teacher is to go in and save any, everybody. First of all, it's just yoga. We're not asking them to rappel down a mountain. We're not asking them to jump out of a plane. And number two, our job is not to save anybody. It's not to save anybody. It is to simply guide them through a movement-based practice. And so what I offer you to do is to go into your classes over the next week and observe yourself in relation to your students and notice if you feel those energetic cords are there. Because I promise you, when you cut those energetic cords, you are going to feel so much more free to teach. It's going to blow your mind. You are going to go in and teach classes and just be like, hey, I'm here. So glad to see you. But up, but up, but up. Have a good night. You're going to go home and live your life. Like that is an ideal situation. You're being of service, but guess what? You're respecting boundaries and you're giving them full control and full agency over their own experience. And it's much in, in a transactional way, it's much more even, much less, well, I'm here as the teacher. And, you know, like I was saying before, I can put my hands on you and not even ask permission. And I need to worry about you and I can save you. No, there's none of that. And actually there is messaging around that that persona in the industry. And I'm here to say that is not part of our role as teachers. So if this is at all resonating with you, I'd love to hear from you. So send me a DM on Instagram and tell me what came up for you when you heard this part of the conversation. So the last thing I wanted to talk about, and this is another little story here, is one of the other conversations I had this week with a teacher in my program was having to do with um, perfectionism and perfectionism as something that holds us back from, or not that it holds us back. I mean, it does hold us back, but also as a, as a quality, as a mindset, not even as a quality, as a, as a mental frame that gets in the way of us being fully authentic and confident as a teacher. And in the conversation I was having, what was really interesting is talking to this teacher about 
what's the source of this perfectionism? Because the way this comes up for this particular teacher, and I, I'll bet this might actually resonate with you too, is that she has an inner critic. So I want you to think of the typical paradigm of the red devil and the angel or the, yeah, whatever, the devil and the angel, one is on each shoulder. And you go in to teach your class and maybe the angel or whatever white apparition type figure is the good figure. And they're on your one shoulder and they're like, you're going to do great. This is going to be such a great class. And then you start teaching and the devil is on the other shoulder going, you fuck this up. How come you're not doing a good job here? Who do you think you are? They don't like your class. And that sort of counter programming goes on and on and on not only while you're teaching but then especially when you're done with your class the devil is just like that was awful you didn't do a good job so that inner critic runs really strong and so in conversation with this teacher we were we were just going back a little bit we were trying to understand like what does that come from and she was very courageous in sharing with me a little bit about her relationship with her mom and dad and some of what she was raised with. And, you know, believe me, the, the conversations I have with teachers in the program are not therapy. It's more in service to understanding the behaviors one has as a yoga teacher and what might be behind those behaviors if those behaviors aren't serving the teacher. So that's the perimeter. And I have a counseling background. I was a social worker and a rehab counselor. So believe me, I know when I'm going into that zone and I'm not doing that with teachers in my program. However, part of having a healthy mindset is understanding what are the subconscious beliefs that drive us to behave in a certain way. And believe me, as you uncover those unconscious beliefs in service to being a better teacher, guess what? You develop a better relationship with yourself. And so this is one of the amazing benefits of being an authentic, confident yoga teacher. And it's one that they don't tell you about in teacher training because they don't cover any of this stuff in teacher training. I do. And the reason I do is not only because of my experience, but also because of the experiences of the teachers that I have the honor to work with. So I wanted to just wrap up this quick, um, wrap up this episode with a quick story about how that perfectionism also drove me and how it related to a memory I had as a kid. When I was growing up, my dad used to help me with my homework, as many of you probably had your parents help you too. And I have very vivid memories of sitting at the dining room table with my father helping me with my math homework and my chemistry homework because he's an academic and he is very good at numbers. And I wasn't. And so I remember wanting to please my dad and having these homework sessions where I wasn't getting it and he was getting frustrated, not exactly, but I was perceiving it as frustration. And so I was feeling badly that I wasn't getting it. And so as I grew up, I developed this identity that I wasn't good at math. I wasn't good at numbers. I wasn't good with anything related to, to numbers, which of course meant finances. So then I developed a identity that I wasn't good with finances. I wasn't good with money. And it all harkened back to these episodes of doing homework with my dad and my relationship with him and really, of course, wanting to please him. And just a little sidebar, if you haven't watched the Beckham or the Sylvester Stallone or the Arnold Schwarzenegger shows on Netflix, they all have huge dad issues. And even though the three of them are wildly successful, it was so tragic to me to see the depth of of dad issues that these three men, these powerhouse men had growing up. So watch those, they're excellent. 
So anyway, so for me, when I would go into teach class, I very much had this persona of wanting to do it right, wanting to be perfect. And it did harken back to those episodes with my dad and wanting to please him. So I grew up wanting to please myself and I would set the bar really high for myself. And then further, as I grew up and began to be responsible for managing my own finances, I didn't feel I could do that well. So I would always be asking my dad to help me with, you know, assessing this part of my finances, especially when it came to my IRA. I didn't feel comfortable doing it on my own. He and I decided to take back control of it from a financial advisor I had. And we would have these financial summits where my dad would log into my investment account and he would look at it all. And it got to a point where I was like, really still, even in my 50s, very intertwined with my dad around decisions in my life, around money and things like that. And I remember I had this conversation with a coach I was working with for a brief period of time uh, earlier this year, and I wanted to go on vacation. And I said something to her, like, I need to check with my father about spending a couple thousand dollars, if that makes sense. And she was like, girl, you are in your fifties. You don't need to check with your dad about anything. And it was in that moment, I realized the energetic cord I had with my dad still, and my mom to a certain extent, but really my dad. And it was then that I realized by working with this coach that it was long due to cut that cord. And so over the past several months, like not several months, but this whole year, and even a little bit earlier, uh, late last year, but definitely this year, slowly but surely, I have just stopped bringing up things with my parents that I used to talk to them about because they have enough on their plate. You know, like they have stuff that they're dealing with. They have retirement stuff that they're doing and grandkids and all of that. And, uh, and they don't need to coach me and I don't need their support in that way. But because neither of us or none of us were saying no to it, we were all just continuing to sort of create this, you know, dependency. And so over this year, what I've found is I've developed a whole different level of relationship with my parents. And we don't talk about those sorts of things. I don't bring it up. They don't ask how things are going. I'm living my life. I'm making the big girl decisions on my own that I need to make. And it's been a really healthy thing for our relationship for me to cut that energetic cord. So with that, we are at the end of this episode. And as always, I always like to end with some call to action for you. So as you're listening to this episode, my first call to action would be anything that came up for you as you were listening. I would love to hear any of your thoughts around it. So go to my Instagram, Bare Bones Yoga, and send me a direct message. And then the last thing I'll say is this, you know, we're in November, we're heading towards the end of the year. Most yoga teachers are going to put off any kind of personal growth until next year. And I want you to imagine rather than being like everybody else, what would it be like for you to actually get a jump start on it so that in January, when classes are really big again, because everybody's going to restart their yoga practice, you really feel like you've got your act together and you can walk into any room, not feel nervous, teach authentically, have all of the sequencing and cues down and really feel empowered to show up 100% as yourself with no nerves and nothing but using your own words and your own sequences, not having to practice with your class. 
And if that is a vision that resonates with you, I want you to send me a DM and just reference the podcast and reference this last bit of it and say, tell me more and I'll tell you how you can do it. So thank you so much for listening. I hope you uh, have a wonderful Thanksgiving if I don't connect with you between now and then, uh, if you celebrate. And I will see you on the next episode or connect with you on the next episode of Conversations for Yoga Teachers. Namaste. Thanks for listening today. I hope you enjoyed the episode. And as a special thanks, DM me the words podcast offer, and I'll share with you a special opportunity for yoga teachers who are ready to be confident and skilled and drop all the prep time you most likely are doing, getting ready for class, drop practicing with class, and instead do what I call the walk and talk, drop using the same cues over and over, and drop worrying what other people think. If this is you and you're ready to step into your most powerful, authentic way of teaching, just DM me the words podcast offer on my Instagram and I'll tell you how I can help you.